Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему как щи Все коты поют Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies Part of the New Books Network I'm your host, Sean Guillory Every podcast I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia In this episode, I spoke with Stephen Barnes about his book, Death and Redemption, The Gulag and the Shaping of Soviet Society. For many, the Soviet main administration of collective labor camps and colonies, or the Gulag, serves as the quintessential symbol of Stalinism. Under Stalin, 18 million people passed through its gates. No less than 1.6 million died in its horrifying conditions. Six to seven million more people were subject to internal exile. The Gulag so eloquently brought to Western public attention with the publication of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago in 1973, has been viewed as concentration camps, slave labor camps, and death camps. While the death and brutality metered out by the Gulag system is beyond repute, Stephen Barnes' Death and Redemption, The Gulag, and the Shaping of Soviet Society notes the paradox that about 20% of its population was released every year. Moreover, the Soviet regime invested enormous resources to re-education, rehabilitation, and redemption. Therefore, Barnes is interested less in how Gulag prisoners died, but rather in the complex system of redemption, its impact on prisoner life and identity, and what prisoner rehabilitation says about the Soviet system as a whole. So here is my interview with Steve. Hi, Steve. Hi, Sean. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Russian-Eurasian Studies. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, Death and Redemption, The Gulag and the Shaping of Soviet Society. Great to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, just to start off, tell me a bit about yourself and how you got interested in the Gulag. Sure. Uh, I'm a, a small-town Midwestern kid, uh, and it seems a little strange to, to wind up uh, spending my life studying Russia. Uh, I actually grew up in a town in Missouri, a small town called Odessa, though that has absolutely nothing to do with, with why I study Russia. Just one of those uh, strange things. But I love in Russia to tell people I'm from Odessa, and then it causes an interesting conversation. Uh, anyway, being a, you know from a small town, uh, there was not much actually in foreign languages taught uh, in my high school. Uh, and so I actually chose not to take a foreign language at all in my high school. You could take one year of French, I think, and then you could take uh, Spanish. But every year after the first year, like all years were taught in the same classroom at the same time, and it seemed kind of pointless to me. Uh, why this is important is because when I, I uh, went to college, uh, I went to Harvard, uh, first in my family to go to college. Uh, but when I went there and I had a foreign language requirement, I wasn't tied to something that I had already started with. Uh, so it was 1989. Uh, obviously a phenomenally interesting fall uh, to be your first uh, semester in college. Uh, and I started taking Russian. Uh, now, I thought I was going to be a business major. I thought, you know, uh, I was going to go out and make big money. And I thought, gosh, you know, with everything that's happening in Russia, this is going to be the place to make the big money. Uh, I think it turns out that I was right, but I'm not actually one of the ones that went and made money there. Right. Uh, so I fell, in, I, I fell in love with it. You know, I, I had some interest in history. I'd taken a really interesting world history course in high school, uh, fell in, uh, into a lot of interest in the revolution. Uh, and so that first semester, I also took a, uh, an imperial Russian history course from Richard Pipes. 
uh, took the Russian language class and just sort of fell over for everything Russian. I mean, I was just fascinated by it, fascinating by the history, fascinated by the literature, sort of everything about it. Uh, wound up being a Russian studies major. Uh, still probably thought I was going to go out uh, into the business world. Um, but uh, probably three months after leaving college, uh, I realized how much I missed the, the research that I had done on my uh, senior honors thesis uh, as a college student and decided, you know, maybe uh, becoming a historian, uh, going to graduate school was going to be the thing to do. Uh, so uh, I spent my graduate uh, school years at Stanford uh, and became interested in the Gulag, uh, actually from writing the worst paper that I wrote uh, in my years in graduate school. Um, so I, I was taking this course... Um, uh, gosh, uh, Marxism, imperialism, and their critics, I think. But a lot of uh, theoretical readings, uh, many of which, frankly, at that point in time, I really didn't understand. Uh, but uh, the final paper assignment for the course uh, was to find a cultural artifact uh, and write about it using uh, some of these theories that we had been talking about. So I was... Uh, just looking around in the library to see what I could find, uh, you know, something related to the Soviet Union to write about. Uh, and I came across a, uh, an exhibition catalog uh, from an exhibition of Gulag art that Memorial held in, I believe, 1990. Um, it uh, included things that prisoners had done while they were prisoners uh, and uh, artwork done by former prisoners after they had left. Uh, and I became just really fascinated, uh, you know, going through this. At the, the, you know, there are these people there who are trying to live uh, their lives, who are um, going to extreme lengths sometimes to try to uh, make art. Uh, so you look through the, the materials that these uh, pieces of artwork were made out of. You'll find, you know, tree bark used for paper, pig's blood used for paint. Uh, and so I was absolutely fascinated. And and so I, I, I chose that as my cultural artifact, that artwork. I wrote a horrendous paper, but I knew I had come upon the right questions. It's just the theories uh, that we had been reading in that class were not the way for me to go about trying to answer those questions. Uh, but the questions that I had, you know, was, uh, well, I had always had this picture in my mind, that I think most of us did, uh, that the gulag was really nothing more than a march to death. Certainly, yeah. Uh, and, and, and as I'm looking at this artwork, I'm thinking, wow, there's, there's something going on there. There's people trying to live a life. Uh, and so the next semester, then, I had one of my research seminars uh, in graduate school and, you know, just started reading and reading and reading uh, and trying to, you know, go through memoirs. There were a few um, publications of documents coming out about that time. Uh, not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, and in particular, uh, you know, one of the things that I read that really fascinated me was uh, a night, you know, I still remember the piece very clearly. 1993 American Historical Review article uh, by Arch Getty, Gabor Riddersporn, and Victor Zimskov uh, that talked about basically facts and figures uh, that we were getting out of the archives, numbers of prisoners. Uh, numbers of deaths, uh, these kinds of things. And, and the thing that shocked me most uh, was that 20 to 40 percent of the Gulag population was being released every year uh, throughout the Stalin years. Throughout those years that we thought that this was nothing more than a march to death, people were coming out. Uh, and so, you know, that, that raises a world of questions uh, that, you know, I've, I've spent uh, more than a decade trying to answer. Um, you know, how do they decide who's released? 
um, you know, who is in fact released, who dies there, you know, I mean, what, can we make any sense of all of this? Are, are they worried about, you know, what these people are going to be like when they return uh, to society? You know, so all of these kinds of questions, and I just, you know, sort of started plugging away at it uh, and trying to come up with uh, some answers. And how did this long journey lead you to writing Death and Redemption? Well, as uh, the archives had become open late 80s and into the 90s, uh, and now it's the late 90s when I'm starting to write and starting to do research, uh, by this point there are millions upon millions upon millions of uh, uh, official documents becoming available. Uh, in fact, I'm in Moscow in the summer of 1998 working in the Central Gulag Administration archival collection uh, when I get an email from my uh, dissertation advisor, Amir Viner, out at Stanford, uh, that the Hoover Institution has signed an agreement to microfilm this very collection that I'm there oh, wow. uh, looking at. So they end up bringing this centrally important archival collection for my dissertation to my university, and it had absolutely nothing to do with why I chose the topic uh, or why they chose to do this. It was just sort of happenstance. Very lucky. Um yeah, but the initial agreement for this was 1.5 million reels, uh, 1.5 million frames of microfilm. Uh, and from what I understand, they ended up, uh, shall we say, overfulfilling the plan. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so faced with that, uh, you have to sort of think, you know, how, how am I going to make this a doable project? Uh, and as I started thinking about various ways of limiting the project, um, I became unhappy with a lot of them. I didn't want to limit it by chronology because I saw really important changes that happened throughout the, the Stalin and end of the post-Stalin years. Um, I, uh, I didn't want to look at, you know, just certain kinds of prisoners, just certain kinds of institutions because I began to understand that, uh, that you had to, to think about it all together. Uh, and, uh, in the midst of a, uh, a sort of, well, one-on-two seminar, Stephen Kotkin came out to Stanford, uh, to give a talk. Uh, and very graciously agreed to sit down with myself and, and Andrew Jenks, one of my graduate school colleagues. We were both at the time sort of thinking about dissertation projects. Uh, and he read proposals that we had done and, and sat down and talked with us. And he suggested the idea of a local study um, and uh, suggested actually also some localities that I might look into. Um, and, you know, that sort of led me on to the path of, of doing a local study. Uh, and then it was a matter of trying to find the right place. Uh, so there were a number of things that, you know, any location had to have for me so that I could try to tell the whole story of the gulag, uh, in a sense, through this one location. You know, I mean, obviously it doesn't cover absolutely everything because you're limiting this by a place. Um, but I wanted a place that had, you know, um, internally exiled peoples. I wanted a place that had a, you know, a very long-lasting gulag camp. You know, that went from the earliest years of the Stalin era, you know, late 20s or early 30s, uh, and went into the post-Stalin years. Um, they created a, a system of special camps in 1948 uh, for a, a subsection of the political prisoners, and I wanted a place that had one of those. There were, uh, you know, a very small number of those. Uh, and then there were a number of uprisings that happened uh, in gulag camps after Stalin died, and I really wanted to be able to look at that as well. Uh, and so when it came down to it, there were three locations that I uh, could choose from. Uh, Vorkuta, uh, up above the Arctic Circle, Norilsk, also above the Arctic Circle, and Kerganda in Kazakhstan. 
Uh, and I chose the latter, and I chose it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's not above the Arctic Circle. <laughs> Good uh, choice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> somehow the idea of uh, no light in the winter. Um, and, you know, the other reason that I chose Karaganda uh, was that I thought there might be something interesting about the fact that it was outside of uh, the Russian Republic. Uh, now, it turns out, in the end, that that actually uh, played very little uh, role in what went on there. It was directly subordinate to Moscow. Uh, and there just wasn't that much about it being in Kazakhstan that I think makes it different than a gulag camp in Russia. Uh, but that was, you know, the reasoning when, when, I, when I initially chose to do this. Um, and so then, you know, I, I started plugging through those uh, uh, documents that were being brought to Stanford on microfilm, um, going through as many as I could. I spent a year going through those uh, and, you know, then uh, trying to go and make my local study local. Uh, and so I went uh, to Moscow uh, to do some more work there. I went to Almaty, the um, capital of, of the Kazakh Republic in the Soviet era, um, which in the end had relatively little uh, to lend to this uh, particular study because it was, this camp was subordinate to Moscow. And then I went to Karaganda. Uh, and there uh, I was met with a, a real treasure trove of documents, um, uh, not officially declassified, these documents, uh, held by uh, an institute with a really long name, uh, but basically it's under the procuracy of the Karaganda region. They held the... Uh, the archive of this camp, uh, and the director of this uh, um, institution, a very liberal guy, and thought um, these uh, uh, things needed to be known, and thought that he had the personal thought that he had the personal authority to allow people to look at these documents, even though they had not been declassified. And what year was that in? I'm sorry. This what year? In, uh, no, no. This was in early 2000. Okay. And uh, he uh, let me look at anything. Uh, he let me see things I couldn't see in Moscow. Um, now, in the end, uh, you know, I, I, he also let me order a tremendous number of photocopies uh, of the materials there. And in the end, they took back a small portion of the photocopies that I ordered, uh, probably 5% or less. Uh, although then he told me, and this, of course, you know, as they do these things, this is the very last day I'm scheduled to be in Kazakhstan. I have a flight the next morning. Um, but he told me I could take as many notes on them as I wanted. Oh. Uh, so I'm mad on this last day, right, trying to go through these documents. And they were almost entirely about the internal surveillance system. And oh, wow. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's material that is still officially classified uh, in Moscow as well. Uh, these materials, you, you can't even look at them. You can't look at the index of this part of the Central Gulag collection uh, to this day. But I got to look at individual prisoner files. I got to look at the administrative files on how the, the this particular set of camps operated. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it just was really phenomenal material uh, wow. for uh, the dissertation and then, of course, the book later. Well, before we get into the, the meat of the book, um, why don't you talk a bit about what the gulag is and what purpose does it serve? Well, the gulag, uh, well, well, the term, of course, uh, as we know, stands for the Chief Administration of um, Corrective Labor Camps and Colonies. Um, it's a bureaucratic institution. It's the institution that had oversight over uh, the system. But, of course, the term has entered a much wider usage 
um, starting with Solzhenitsyn's pub- publication of Gulag Archipelago in, in 73 uh, and 74. So when I use the term, when I talk about the Gulag, what I am essentially talking about is the entire Soviet forced labor detention system. Uh, it's the penal system. Uh, it's the system of internal exile. It includes labor camps uh, of various sorts. It includes um, prisons. Uh, it includes exile. Um, and so when I use the term Gulag, I'm using it in this very broad sense rather than just about a particular bureaucratic institution. Um, the Gulag, you know, it did a lot of things uh, in Stalin's Soviet Union. Uh, it was the penal system. I mean, this, you know, you're a robber, a rapist, a murderer, or a thief. I mean, you're going to wind up in a Gulag camp. Uh, but of course, it's also a system that held um, political uh, prisoners. Uh, it's a very complicated term, a complicated notion, I think, in, in the Soviet case, because a lot of times you were arrested for what was supposedly a political crime, but that doesn't mean that you were actually in some kind of political opposition to the system. Uh, by and large, these are not prisoners of conscience, uh, but they are people who are often for no reason, often for you know relatively uh, minor reasons, you know, telling a joke and somebody denounces you or something like this, uh, you know, wind up uh, in the camp system. It held, you know, therefore, uh, you know, peasants, uh, workers, intellectuals, it held all kinds of people, all different uh, Soviet ethnic groups uh, were in these camps. Uh, so it held, right, the, the regular criminals, it held these uh, political prisoners. And then there's a whole group that, you know, to my mind, don't really fall into either category, uh, which is to say that you're uh, arrested for... Um, taking a few potatoes from a field after the harvest has already happened because you happen to be in the midst of a famine in 1932 or 1933 and you're trying to feed your family. Uh, and they pass a law, uh, August 7th, 1932, uh, under which people are, are uh, very severely punished for this. You know, and so, yeah, technically they violated a law, uh, but, you know, the, 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 the punishment is so out of proportion to the crime that, you know, I, I, I hesitate to call these people criminals, right? Uh, and, and there, you know, and there are other laws that come along that actually, I mean, these people will, will make up the bulk of the Gulag population. Uh, so there are very harsh labor laws in, uh, 40 and 41, uh, under which, you know, you can't leave your job without permission. And if you do, it can be considered a crime. You can't, uh, show up late for work on multiple occasions, or it can be considered a crime. Um, and again, you know, so okay, there's a law, and people are violating the law. But I mean, come on. Uh, so, so the Gulag holds all of these um, different peoples that, you know, for one reason or another, the Soviet state has decided uh, are, I guess, you know, potentially dangerous to uh, the system and to the society. Um, but the Gulag, of course, is also then carrying out economic functions. Um, its uh, prisoners are running agricultural enterprises, which is what they did uh, primarily in uh, this camp in Kazakhstan that I spent most of my time studying. But then, of course, you know, prisoners were uh, mining gold or copper or coal or uranium. Uh, they were cutting timber. They were building roads. They were building railways. Uh, they were doing all kinds of labor, often in the extreme uh, geographic locations of the Soviet Union, uh, because they could pick up a labor force and put them there uh, in this way. Um, so the Gulag is playing that role as well. Um, but the Gulag is, uh, you know, and I think in many respects the main argument of my book, 
uh, is that the gulag is is sorting people out. Um, it's in a way, it's a last chance for people. Uh, to show the Soviet state that they could return to society and be, uh, you know, not dangerous. Uh, now, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, most of these people weren't dangerous anyway. Um, but this is how the system uh, was operating. Uh, so if you look through the various practices that are carried out in the system, and you see over and over and over again that uh, your capacity to survive or your, your uh, uh, ability to be released uh, has relationships directly to uh, all of these practices. Uh, food provision, for example. Uh, prisoners are provided food according to the amount of labor that they uh, perform. Uh, if they perform, you know, 100% of their labor norm for a given day, they get a certain amount of food. If they produce 150%, they get extra food. If they produce 80%, they get less. Well, what happens, of course, and the idea here uh, was that, uh, you know, those who were uh, not producing their full uh, labor norm uh, were therefore not sort of living up to what it was supposed to mean to be a, a Soviet citizen. Uh, and therefore, you give them less food, and you break their resistance. You break their enemy activities, uh, and you know the idea then is that well, they'll work harder, and they'll you know come up to full uh, uh, labor norms. Uh, but of course, what is more likely to happen, and which the Soviets didn't mind all that much, frankly, uh, what was more likely to happen is that you produce less, you get less food, your body becomes weaker, you produce even less, you get even less food, uh, until eventually you wind up uh, dead. Uh, and so, uh, you know, survival then becomes directly tied to labor, which is one of these key ways in which uh, what it meant to be an honest Soviet citizen was being defined. So, in ad- but in addition to labor, I mean, labor plays a, a, a major, major role throughout, and you, you repeatedly come back to it throughout the book. But you also say, and, and I think this is the big contribution you're making to the history of Gulag, that it is. It does have this reformist aspect, like any other penal system. It is to re-educate, reform the prisoners in order to ideally one day return them back to uh, society. So, talk about the meaning of re-education in the Gulag, and, and how did a prisoner uh, reform him or herself? Sure, um, and, and you know, I would add, a, you know, a, into what you said, you know, in terms of this being like any other penal system, well, uh, you know, to an extent, right, there's this cynicism about re-education in every penal system. You know, you never know if somebody is just, you know, behaving themselves now, uh, putting on a show, but ultimately they'll return to their criminal ways once they get out. And I think the same kind of thing is operating here. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, what you see is that there are a variety of what we could refer to as corrective or re-education practices uh, that go on from the time a prisoner arrives in a gulag camp or colony until the time that they leave. Um, and, you know, it's a wide variety of things. It's, uh, you know, camp newspapers, uh, which, you know, we have huge collections of them available. Uh, it's, uh, you know, wall newspapers, the sort of propaganda posters almost that, that describe what's going on in this uh, particular uh, location. Uh, it's uh, cultural groups, it's, uh, you know, musical groups, it's political discussions. Um, but, and, you know, here I have to come back to it again, it's mostly about labor. Uh, even when you look at the content of most of those um, 
political and cultural educational activities, the content of most of them also then refers directly back to labor. And this is where I think, you know, historians have sometimes made a mistake in then seeing the gulag as being about nothing more than trying to get the most you can out of slave laborers. I mean, it was in part that, and there were these economic uh, plans that had to be fulfilled, and there was a, a lot of pressure put on uh, camp administrators uh, to fulfill those plans. Um, but when you tie this into the question of who's going to be released and who's not going to be released, um, you see that it is playing this uh, role in determining uh, you know, who's going to survive this place. Uh, it is uh, not only then about trying to change a prisoner, uh, but it's also trying to come up with some kind of a measurement of whether a prisoner has been changed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this emphasis on on do you think that this emphasis on labor is some way connected to Marxist ideology in the sense that labor kind of defines you as a person? Um, in in this you know back to the roots of Marx. I, I think there's a certain amount of that there. Um, you know, labor is is what it meant to be human. Um, there was, you know, and if you look at very early um, Soviet writings, even pre-Soviet writings uh, about crime and criminality, uh, it was also about labor. I mean, the reason that people had turned to crime is because labor was exploitive. Uh, and since it was exploitive, then they, they you know, begin to realize that they're not going to get anywhere just by being laborers, so they go out and they steal, and it's actually not so bad, uh, you know, from a Marxist point of view or from a Marxist-Leninist point of view and thinking about this is not so bad because, uh, you know, you're stealing from the exploiters anyway. Um, and the idea here is that you have to sort of convince prisoners, convince criminals, uh, that now under Soviet rule, uh, labor is no longer exploitive. Um, you have to, you have to, you know, you you can't immediately expect them to uh, turn away from what they had been doing uh, because you know they had grown to understand labor as exploitive. Uh, so you had to sort of change their mind. Now, you know, I mean, of course, it's it's farcical when you think about it that you know somehow a prisoner is going to work in the gulag and uh, see their labor as not exploitive. Uh, but but uh, but. But it, you know, this plays a significant role, and and you know, I think then you you know you you can look at all kinds of uh, other studies on Soviet society uh, in the Stalin years before and after, uh, and see how one's labor uh, and how one performs in one's job uh, has become a really key marker for sort of who you were as a Soviet citizen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, and it's operating the same way in the camps. Um, you know, how you labor is uh, a definition of who you are. Um, and, and uh, you know, so, I mean, part of this, you know, certainly relates back to, uh, you know, the way that the um, Bolsheviks, you know, thought about the world. Uh, but, of course, not just them. Uh, and, you know, certainly we see um, labor as a means of re-education is, is by no means something that is exclusive to communist systems. Uh, it's something that's, you know, happening in many other places in the world uh, in the, the 19th and the 20th centuries. Um, and so, you know, they're part of this. They fit within this. Um, but there's something, you know, I think p- particularly uh, um, radical about 
you know, their notions of um, labor and of, uh, you know, what it means to be an honest citizen and more particularly, of course, what it means to be an enemy. Uh, and, you know, that they're trying to accomplish something great here, you know, to build this society without conflict, to build a classless society and ultimately to build communism. It's this, it's this sort of uh, uh, utopian ideal uh, and you had to be merciless in dealing with those who were trying to prevent you from getting there. Uh, and this, you know, I think this part of it helps us uh, in some ways to account for the brutality of the whole thing. Now, you, you said in your opening, and you also say, of course, repeat this in the book, that um, at any given year, 20 to 40 percent of the Gulag population is released. So, and, and this is, is an important revelation because it turns our, our understanding of the Gulag away from it being a death camp. Um, how does a prisoner get released, an early release, let's say? Well, the, the, I mean, there are a number of ways to be released. One, of course, is simply to finish your sentence. Um, you know, you give 10 years, you spend 10 years, you get out. Um, we can certainly read plenty of memoirs where that happened. I mean, read Evgeny Ginsburg's memoir. She gets 10 years, she gets out uh, after 10 years. It's an amazing story, by the way. I mean, she survived through the absolute most uh, deadly years of uh, the Gulag in one of the most deadly locations, but she got out. Um, so a lot of people simply finish their sentence, and if they were not charged with some other crime while they were there, and you certainly could be if you refused to labor. Uh, so if somehow refusing to labor didn't kill you, uh, they could then criminally charge you for refusing to labor, and you know you still don't get out. Um, but so one way is to finish your sentence. Uh, another is uh, you know various kinds of early release. Um, and, you know, throughout the 1930s, uh, and then again in the late 40s, uh, we saw a system called, you can call it something like accounted working days, but you can sort of think of it as time off for good behavior, uh, which is, it, it operated like this. And again, it comes back to labor. You perform 150% of your labor norms today, and today will count, uh, you know, maybe two days toward the completion of your sentence. Uh, you produce 120%, and maybe today counts a day and a half toward the completion of your sentence. Uh, and and the you know the exact ratios varied uh, through through the history here, um, but they you know spent a tremendous amount of effort documenting this stuff. Uh, you go through individual prisoner files, and there's page after page after page where they've documented you know their labor performance and what kind of number of days they've earned toward the completion of their sentence, and therefore this is the date now that their sentence is supposed to end. Um, and so that's, you know, another way that people were released, and lots of people were released early uh, in this fashion. Uh, then, of course, there are periodic amnesties that happen, uh, some of them small, some of them quite large. Um, in, uh, you know, during the war, for example, uh, well over a million prisoners are going to be released to join the Red Army. Uh, immediately after the war, there's a big amnesty. There's a big amnesty right after Stalin dies. Um, but again, uh, we start to see how these amnesties are also sorting prisoners uh, because, you know, the, the amnesty will be limited to prisoners who have sentences, for example, of less than five years, uh, or it will be limited to uh, only prisoners who have non, uh, you know, have allegedly committed non-political crimes. Uh, but they can also look at your labor performance uh when carrying out these uh amnesties and determining who who can and should be released. Um, you know, sometimes uh it's pregnant women who are released or women with young children who are re released or um, elderly prisoners who are released. Uh but all of these different ways, you know, that they're again they're sorting the prisoners, uh, you know, who is it safe uh to let out and who is it not. Um, so you know so that's a, a, another means of release and that 
you know, is very, very uh, common, at least in terms of, of, you know, individual life stories, because you're talking about millions and millions of prisoners who will be released uh, in that way. Um, you know, and then, of course, the other way that you go out of the gulag is that you go into the ground. Right. Uh, this happened a lot, too, you know. I mean, uh, by official figures, you know, we're talking probably at least 10% of the people who went through the camp system died there. Um and uh, it's quite possible that that number is too low. Right. Uh, we know, for example, uh, I mean, there was a practice uh, among some camp leaders who would release prisoners who were basically at death's door uh, so that their deaths wouldn't count on their um, statistics. Uh, so these people died, and they really died in the gulag, uh, but they don't count in gulag statistics, and we'll never sort of be able to recapture that. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a bit about statistics and categories because you spend some time talking about this. That, of course, any uh, prison system wants to know and categorize its population. And, and, and with your theme that the gulag is about sorting prisoners, or even uh, a microcosm of society as a whole, of sorting society as a whole. Talk about how the system categorizes prisoners, and then how this fed into the particular identities of groups within the camp. It's a very complex system of categorizing prisoners um, because it, 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 you know, it's not like, uh, you know, being Jewish in Nazi Germany where, you know, that's sort of your overriding identity and nothing else really matters. Um, there's all kinds of ways that you're being defined in the camps. You know, first and most important really is the, the crime that you allegedly committed. Uh, so if you were convicted of... Uh, an Article 58 offense, according to the Russian uh, Criminal Code, uh, and this is uh, counter-revolutionary offenses, is those that we might want to understand as as um, political uh, crimes. Though again, you know, I've already mentioned how this is a sort of tenuous uh, description. Here, um, these prisoners uh, were generally considered to be the least redeemable the most dangerous, um, the ones that you least wanted to release. Um, criminals, common petty criminals, uh, were sort of considered the most redeemable. Uh, they usually had the shortest sentences, of course. They were most likely to be released in amnesties and uh, to get out early and all of these kinds of things. So the crime that you supposedly committed is one of the really uh, key factors that's going to help determine your capacity for survival of the system. Um, but there are many other things that matter, too. One's uh, ethnic group or nationality, as the Soviets would call it, uh, could matter a lot. Um, and and one's uh, uh, gender could matter a lot. Uh, whether you had been in the party uh, could matter a lot. Whether you had uh, been in the Red Army and what you had done while you were in the Red Army uh, could matter a lot. Um, so all of these various things are, are ways uh, to sort your prisoners, to, to take a group of, you know, at any given time, uh, upwards of perhaps 5 million people who are detained in exile and in camps uh, and group them in some way that you can make sense of, of this population and determine a way to uh, treat them. Oh, uh, how did the, the, the description of these categories onto prisoners also reflect their relations between each other in the camps? It, it's interesting, and, you know, it's sort of who creates these categories and, uh, uh, you know, who's using whose categories is is uh, an interesting question. Uh, we know, for example, that those who are uh, convicted under Article 58, these um, so-called counter-revolutionaries in Soviet terminology, 
Um, but political prisoners in their own terminology. Um, and certainly among those who are the memoirists, who are the most uh, likely, of course, to have written memoirs and to give us an account of what they thought about their time in the camp system. Um, but they saw this distinction between politicals and criminals uh, in really, I think, starker terms even uh, than Soviet authorities saw between what they called counter-revolutionaries and what they called you know, sort of regular criminals. And this plays a, then a significant role uh, in sort of self-understanding uh, among the prisoners. I mean, you re- read the political memoirs one after another, after another, after another, uh, and you will uh, see again and again how they describe themselves as constantly under the thumb of the criminals and the camp system. They see the criminals as you know working directly with Gulag authorities as uh, really their oppressors. Uh, in many respects, the, the criminals are more oppressive than the guards uh, of the gulag system in the minds of these politicals. You know, Evgeny Ginsburg calls them beyond the bounds of humanity. Uh, I mean, this is stark uh, understanding of a difference between one group uh, and the other. Um, now, you know, what's not always clear then uh, is, you know, who exactly is a criminal? Uh, It runs into the same kind of problematics with the question of who is exactly a a political prisoner. Uh, You know, it's clear that most of these memoirists have in mind the professional criminals, the voriv zakoni, the the thieves in law, the members of these criminal gangs, the ones that you know about with all the tattoos all over their bodies, right? Um, And these people were incredibly brutal. Uh, incredibly violent. It was part of their culture and, you know, part of, of the way that they operated certainly was to take advantage of the political prisoners. Um, but what do we make of all of these other people who are not in these criminal gangs, uh, who are not uh, Article 58 prisoners? There's a whole mass of prisoners that aren't included in that, um, that, you know, we need to spend some more time thinking about. Unfortunately, we, you know, we have very little uh, in terms of um, personal accounts from, you know, the peasant who stole some food from the field. Uh, we have far more accounts from the intellectuals, which makes sense. I mean, they're the ones who wrote. They're the ones who wrote and put it in their desk drawer for years uh, in the Soviet era. They're the ones who wrote, uh, you know, in the late 80s and after. Do we have any materials from uh, the criminals and how they regarded politicals? Really, there's very little uh, in terms of, of personal accounts from uh, that side. Um, and, and that, again, you know, is, is uh, a pity. Uh, so most of what we have uh, in terms of thinking, you know, how these uh, people thought about themselves is, you know, secondhand accounts from, from mostly people who saw themselves as politicals as well. Though there's some very interesting memoirs out there. I mean, Janusz Bardach. Um, wrote this uh, memoir called Man is Wolf to Man. Uh, he was uh, uh, a Jewish Pole uh, who wound up just uh, on the Soviet side uh, after 1939, uh, winds up in the army, gets uh, arrested for, uh, if I remember right, turning a tank over in uh, a river or something like this. Um, he doesn't understand himself really as a political uh, he certainly doesn't understand himself as a criminal, but he doesn't understand himself as a political either. Uh, and he actually befriends a number of these um, 
criminal gang members. Uh, it's really one of the keys to his survival that he was able to sort of, uh, you know, get in with this group, and he became their storyteller. Uh, and this is also something, I mean, you'll see this from time to time, that, you know, this is one role politicals could play or intellectuals could play uh, and, you know, sort of uh, get along a little better, shall we say, with these criminal gangs. And so when you read the account uh, from Janusz Bardock, um, it doesn't have the same intense hatred of this group. Um, and so perhaps uh, it's a little better account of how these uh, uh, prisoners thought about their experience. But, you know, but it was really a pity when we have too little uh, to, to help us from this uh, from the side. In the sense that our story of the Gulag still remains one told by from intellectuals or uh, the other political types. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and of course, we're we're um, nuancing that story, I guess, or we're we're complicating that story a bit with official documentation. Uh, and so that gives us another end to think about the camp system. Um, but we're still largely devoid of uh, personal accounts from people other than these intellectual political prisoners. Um, you know, there, there, of course, is this recent publication um, called Gulag Boss, uh, which is an account of, as it says, a Gulag Boss of, of uh, you know, uh, a camp administrator. Uh, and, you know, but this is very, very rare uh, that we have this kind of account. And, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of sides that are missing to our story, Um Still, and, 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 you know, I'm so pleased that so many people are working on um, studying the Gulag now because there's so much that still needs to be understood. There's so much that I could never have fit into my book uh, and that, you know, one person simply can't do. Um, and, and I think we're going to get a better sense of, of, you know, things from – and people are going at this in some interesting ways trying to – to you know, look at it in different different respects. I, this is outside the scope of your book, but it's a question that I've had. Um, what relationship does the Gulag camp have with the population outside of it? Local villages, people who say work in the camp. Where do they live? Then uh, the local economy around it too. Well, that's an interesting question. It's one that I don't address a lot in my book, um, but there are some um, folks who are working on it in some very interesting ways. Um, Alan Berenberg, uh, who's at Texas Tech University, is uh, working on Varkuta uh, and really working very intensely on that question of how the Gulag sort of fits into um, the local uh, community, the local economy, and everything that's going on there. Um, another is Wilson Bell. A recent PhD from the University of Toronto who's working on CBLUG uh, and also working a lot on those relationships inside the camp and out. Um, it's something that I, I didn't do a lot with. Uh, it's something that we certainly need to think a lot about because, you know, among other things, a lot of these cities didn't exist until the Gulag came along. Certainly, yeah. Um, the city of Karaganda is not officially given the title of Gorid, right, given the title of city uh, until uh, I think it's five or six years after the foundation of Karlag, right, the camp that bears the name of this region, Kerganda region camp. Um, and, you know, so understanding that relationship is very important and understanding the relationship between uh, different kinds of populations. So there is the camp population, uh, but there are also often large numbers of exiled peoples living in these areas mm -hmm. um, who are not quite in camps, um, but they're certainly not quite free. 
Um, and then there, are, of course, are free populations. Then there's a question of the people who worked for the camps, right? The, what they refer to as voluntary workers, uh, but essentially non-prisoners who um, were carrying out various tasks in the camp, whether it be, run, whether it be running an office or serving as a, a guard or serving as, as uh, you know, a boss. Um, and there's there's just simply a lot that that we still need to know about this because uh, you know the, the, it was so tightly. Um, drawn together these communities. Uh, former prisoners, of course, would be also another very, very important part of this. A lot of prisoners didn't leave the area that they were uh, in camp after they got out. Uh, many of them didn't have a home to return to anymore. Um, they had lost their family, um, and so they stayed in the area. Often they were given incentives. If they were considered a particularly good worker, they were given incentives to stay. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question. It's just one, frankly, that, that, you know, I put beyond the scope of my study. Now, you talk about how um, around 1939, the camp, finally, this camp system stabilizes after the tumultuous years of collectivization and deportations and the course of the terror. But in 1939, things begin to change with the annexation of the Baltics and Poland and then eventually, a couple of years later, the outbreak of the war. Talk about the impact of the war on the camps and in daily life there sure uh, you know i mean it's interesting you know we hit 39 right so we think about the great terror of the years of 37 38 right um and it does seem that the gulag has finally sort of solidified as an institution it's become what it's going to become they've instituted all of these very detailed regulations um but it's as soon as it is stabilized it's uh, turned over again. Uh, and the annexation uh, of the uh, western Ukraine, uh, western Belarusia, the Baltic states, um, you know, what today is Moldova, um, all of these areas along the west that were annexed as part of the, uh, the Stalin-Hitler Pact, um, really cause a, a significant change uh, in the camps. Um, this is a whole group of people that spent the interwar period not in the Soviet system. Uh, and most of them spent it in uh, something that was uh, created in the form of a nation state. Um, now, not only, not always are you of the majority nationality in those nation states, but in many cases you are. So, you know, Estonians have an Estonia, and it's supposed to be, you know, a nation state based on Estonia. And so I, I think it gives them a different sense of who they are. Uh, and, of course, uh, you look then at... at um, for example, Western Ukrainians uh, who were in Poland in the interwar period, and and they have a very strong sense of who they are precisely because they're in a nation state that is not supposed to be for them, uh, and so they already are uh, politicals. Many of them, in many respects, uh, you know, they've already been part of nationalist organizations, uh, and when many of these people wind up uh, in the Gulag camps, it, it changes the atmosphere there significantly. Um, we see an even stronger turn. It's already started to a degree, but we see an even stronger turn toward one's nationality or ethnicity being uh, one of the most important uh, categories of, of identity. Um, so, you know, you're an Estonian first and you're, you know, whatever crime you supposedly committed second uh, in many respects. And in how you deal with other prisoners, but also in how the authorities are dealing with you. Um, and so th this is really a significant upheaval. And then, of course, you know, I mean, right after this, we see the start of the war, and that's also going to cause major changes. Uh, you know, we see well over a million prisoners released uh, during the first couple of years of the war. And who's left behind? Well, it's the politicals. Uh, it's the women. 
uh, and it's recidivists, people who had committed multiple crimes, you know, allegedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of throwing allegedly, always. And, and dealing with Soviet justice, I mean, just assume of course. allegedly. Of there. course. <laughs> we never can know whether these people were actually committed anything uh, uh, that we can consider a crime. Um, so in many respects, then, uh, the, the, the camp population during the war is seen as uh, more dangerous than ever before because those that they understood as most likely to be uh, re-educated uh, are all released to join the Red Army. Uh, and so you have left behind this, uh, you know, um, particularly, uh, you know, in the eyes of Soviet authorities, this particularly dangerous population. Um, it's not a surprise, I think, that the war is the years that the Gulag is at its deadliest. You know, you know, a big part of it, of course, is because the Soviet population as a whole is suffering. And if the Soviet population as a whole is suffering, then you can imagine the people in the Gulag are going to suffer even more. Um, but, you know, part of it is that these are the people, you know, if you've been left out of the war effort uh, to a degree, and, you know, they are sort of involved in the economy of the war, it's a different question. But if you're left out of the war effort at the front, you know, you're, you're really not sort of, playing the role that a Soviet citizen is supposed to play, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, then you, we start seeing the addition of uh, deported nationalities during the war, um, the deportation of the entire Soviet uh, German community. Uh, so ethnic Germans who lived in the Soviet Union, many of them lived in the Russian Empire, so many had been, you know, had not lived in, you know, what could be called Germany for, you know, two, three hundred years, Um but now, because they are ethnically German, as it is stamped on their Soviet internal passport, uh, every last one of them is picked up. You could be a member of the party since 1903, uh, and you're going to be deported along with everybody else. The uh, same thing you know, is going to happen for slightly different reasons late in the war to the Chechens, to the English, uh, to the Crimean Tatars, to you know, a, a lot of these... Uh, uh, other ethnic groups. And so we see this real solidification of the notion that, you know, your ethnicity, uh, defines, uh, how, you know, or defines whether you can be an honest Soviet citizen, whether you can be a full Soviet citizen. Um, and so all of these things are really, you know, changing up the camp system. Uh, in 1943, we see the creation of, uh, a sort of subset of the camp system, which they refer to with the old czarist term, Katarga, right? Uh, uh, these are, uh, Katarga was this sort of forced labor exile, uh, in, in the, the imperial Russian system. Uh, well, they've, re you know taken on this term and they've taken you know what they consider the most dangerous of the most dangerous of the most dangerous and very very small portion of this population uh, and they put them in work that is almost certainly going to lead to their death these are the ones who are going to be mining the copper or mining uranium uh, you know the, the extraordinarily dangerous work uh, but these people are you know for the first time we're seeing barracks that are locked at night with bars on the windows they're uh, supposed to be led to and from work in handcuffs so this didn't always happen uh, we see numbers appear on prisoner uniforms. Um, they're uh, under armed guard at all times. Uh, and, and, you know, so, so we've seen this real sort of hardening of the system in many respects uh, in the war years. And how does this fit into the, the economics of the Gulag and is particularly gearing it to war economy? I mean, the, the, the Gulag economy, like the uh, Soviet economy uh, as a whole, uh, is turned toward the war effort. Uh, now, one of the things I think we're quite certain of is that um, the Gulag was actually in the end detrimental to the Soviet economy. It cost far more uh, to run uh, the Gulag than what they really were getting out of it. Uh, but, 
they were able to, you know, in this way, pick up populations and put them wherever they wanted. They were able to get people uh, to do very dangerous work without, you know, huge financial incentives to get them to do this. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the, they are producing, uh, you know, war material. Uh, they're they're um, sewing uniforms. They're um, producing uh, shell casings. Uh, they're also, of course, mining gold, which is being used to fund lend-lease. Um, so th- they're involved in the Soviet economy, you know, in every respect. Um, and of course, uh, and this also, like the rest of the Soviet population, but more fiercely in the Gulag. Uh, their work hours are extended, their days off are reduced, um, the, the norms that they're expected f- to fulfill are raised, the amount of food that they're given is reduced. Um, you know, all of these things that, that, you know, again, are common in the entire Soviet economy, but are, are sort of more intensely applied, uh, inside the Gulag. Uh, so it was the deadliest time, uh, in, uh, 42, 43. And we're talking years in which 20 to 25 percent of the population of the entire camp system die just in one year. Um, you know, surviving through the war years was, you know, quite a feat, to say the least. Now, um, the war ends. And of course, the gulag remains, and it's it it's grown, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then, it, it, of course, will grow. It goes down a bit with an amnesty after the war, but then it grows again. Now, what role does the gulag play in reshaping post-war Soviet society? Well, the gulag, in many respects, continues to play the role that it has been playing, which is sorting prisoners, uh, you know, creating lines between honest Soviet citizen and enemy. Um, it's playing it, uh, you know, to a larger population now uh, than it's ever had before. So the, the Gulag population does decline uh, at the beginning of the war, of course, with the release of all these people. Uh, it declines again at the end of the war uh, with a mass amnesty. But, you know, starting in 47, 48, we see it shoot up to, to the largest that it will ever be, and it will stay this way until Stalin, Stalin dies. And why is that um, the case? You know, I... I it's a couple of things. Uh, in very, in a very direct sense, it's largely the result of very harsh theft laws in 1947, uh, in the midst of yet another famine. Uh, and so millions of people are going to be caught up, you know, for very, very minor incidents of theft. Uh, so in the one sense, you know, it's directly as a result of that law. Uh, no question about it. But in another sense, it's because after the war, um, in a in a way, it's it's more necessary than ever before that you uh, prove that you were an honest Soviet uh, person. Uh, the war was, you know, it was this Armageddon experience. It was now the defining uh, uh, moment in Soviet history. What you did during the war was the definition of who you were. Um, and uh, so, so there's this real rigidification, I think, of uh, boundaries between honest and not honest uh, that happens. Uh, of course, we see the Gulag, uh, you know, following hard on the heels of the Red Army as it, you know, recaptures territory during the war. Uh, we see people who lived under occupation or who were uh, in Nazi POW camps 
we see all of these people uh, uh, going through what, what are were called filtration camps. Uh, many of them, now, not all of them will actually go through the filtration camps, but they are sort of going through a filtration system, which is what did you do while you lived under occupation? Uh, did you behave as you should have behaved? What did you do while you were in a POW camp? Why did you uh, wind up as a prisoner and not fight to the death? Uh, you know, all of these. So we see lots of people passing through the, this, this process of filtration. Uh, and, you know, many people will only spend, you know, six months, a year. I mean, it sounds like nothing, but of course, I mean, it's still a significant portion of a person's life. We don't want to downplay it. Um, but they'll spend six months or a year in this, and then they'll return uh, to their home and, 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 and will not wind up in, you know, the sort of larger gulag per se. But a lot of people will, uh, you know, come out of that filtration camp system and enter uh, the gulag camps proper. Uh, then, of course, you know, the, this real rigidification that I'm talking about after the war, uh, again, relates really strongly to uh, those Western territories that were annexed in 39 and re-annexed uh, at the end of the war. Um, you know, there are, and a lot of people don't know this, uh, bloody battles continue with uh, Ukrainian nationalists, you know, into the 1950s. Uh, with Baltic nationalists, right, with the, the Forest Brothers in Estonia, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, these groups uh, uh, that fought often as partisans against the Nazis and against the Soviets. Um, and, you know, I always say, look, if anybody determined, de- deserved the moniker anti-Soviet, which the regime placed upon them. I mean, these people deserved it because they fought hard. Uh, and, of course, they would not think it as a negative thing. The Soviet state, of course, you know, anti-Soviet is a negative thing. But for these people, it's not. It's about fighting for their independence. Um, and so when these people wind up in the camps, I mean, they have a long history of, uh, you know, fighting against incredible odds. Uh, and they will continue to do so uh, in the camp system itself. In 1953, Stalin dies, um, and but you end the book in 1954 with the the Kengir ups- uprising. Now, talk a bit about what that was about, and and how does this uprising symbolize the decline of the Gulag? So Stalin dies in March of 53. Three weeks after he dies, a massive amnesty is uh, introduced, uh, which will release. Uh, something on the order of half, 50% of all uh, Gulag prisoners. Uh, interestingly, this was Barry's idea. Uh, Barry proposed it to the to the uh, um, um, Central Committee. Uh, said, uh, among other things, you know, the economy here is not working. This thing is costing us incredibly. And he, he says, particularly, there's no state necessity uh, for keeping many of these people who had violated these uh, uh, very. Uh, harsh laws on theft. Uh, there's no reason to keep them uh, in detention. Um, but of course, then what's left behind when you release all of the the, the more petty criminals, uh, you wind up with uh, the hardened criminals, right? Those who committed murders and rapes and the really uh, serious crimes, uh, or committed multiple crimes. Uh, you know, these people who are in criminal gangs. But of course, you also are left with the politicals, and they're excluded from that release. Uh, and so then you're left with uh, a lot of Red Army veterans. You're left, uh, again, with these nationalist uh, groups from uh, the West. And uh, they become more frustrated in many respects than ever before, right? So there's this huge amnesty they see, and they're excluded from it. Um, things are not going to get better for them, uh, the, and they thought that it might. Uh, and so... 
you take these groups then that are kept in, in 1948, they created what were called special camps. Uh, and this was for a subset of the uh, counter-revolutionary prisoners, the Article 58 prisoners, the ones we understand as politicals, right? Uh, it was for those who they really considered to be the most dangerous. Uh, and so this really is a lot of these uh, uh, nationalists. Uh, it's, you know, disproportionately Ukrainian and uh, Estonian and Latvian and Lithuanian. And, you know, it's very disproportionately these groups. But, of course, it's also a lot of uh, Red Army veterans who have had a whole different experience of fighting uh, and feel that they're entitled to something. Uh, and they're excluded from this release. They're in these special camps that are under a stricter regime, essentially like what I talked about earlier with the Katarga camps. Uh, they're doing some of the hardest labor, some of the most dangerous labor uh, in the gulag system, um, and they're excluded. Well, it's a very violent uh, 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 and potent um, mixture of things going on here. Uh, and we see a series of uprisings, and the one that I write about in King Gear is actually the third of the major uh, gulag camp uprisings uh, that happen all in these special camps. Every one of them happens in a special camp. Um, and in the case of King Gear, uh, we see uh, a camp zone that is very heavily from among the Western nationalities. Um, and uh, in response to killings of prisoners by guards, uh, they refuse to go out to work. Uh, they end up throwing the um, uh, camp authorities, the guards, out of the camp zone. Uh, and essentially their camp zone becomes... Uh, its own world for a period of 40 days. Uh, there with, with, you know, the, there, then all kinds of negotiations are happening. It's very interesting between, uh, a, a prisoner strike committee essentially and, uh, uh, Soviet authorities from outside. Um, there's all kinds of attempts, uh, to sort of propagandize the other side. Um, we know that prisoners were flying kites, for example, in which they were using to try to drop leaflets on the local population with the hope that somebody there would inform somebody uh, who was a member of the Central Committee uh, and get them to come and see what was going on because they didn't trust the people that they were dealing with there. And, you know, it's almost the sense of, well, if Stalin knew, right? Well, it's if the Central Committee knew what was going on, they'd do something about this, you know, let them know. They created... Uh, a very low-powered uh, radio broadcasting system, the prisoners. Uh, to, to, to produce power, they were using running water to run a, uh, a sort of mini-generator. Uh, and what we have is very interesting. Uh, uh, we have uh, Soviet authorities who are uh, transcribing these low-powered radio broadcasts, uh, often with gaps in them because the, clearly they're losing the transmission back and forth. Um, but these prisoners are, again, trying to reach the local population uh, and get them to understand what's going on, to understand that uh, 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 this was caused essentially because of these illegal actions on the part of, of uh, camp guards and authorities. Uh, and again, you know, send somebody from the Central Committee. Um, you know, so this is one of those really fascinating moments for me when I was reading this. So uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes an entire chapter about the Kingir uprising in Gulag Archipelago. He calls it the 40 Days of Kingir. Uh, he had interviewed a number of uh, um, people who had been there. Um, and, you know, here's Solzhenitsyn, right, working in the 60s uh, on this book under threat of, you know, punishment if anybody were ever to find out that he's doing it. Um, and he writes about prisoners using kites 
to drop leaflets on the local population. Uh, he writes about so many things that happened there um, that you know may seem almost unrealistic, unlikely. Uh, and then you find out in the official documentation that they say the same thing. So given, given all of this that you've said in, in your book um, and going through the gulag from the 1930s to 1954 and the complexity of it that you've presented, how do we understand the gulag and its place in the Soviet system? What does it represent? Uh, the gulag, I think, you know, fundamentally we really have to understand the gulag as the Soviet penal system. Um, it has a lot of peculiarities because it is the Soviet penal system, but it's also a penal system, and we have to sort of understand both both aspects of that. Um, so we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking it's all about political prisoners, um, because it's not. Uh, but that is one of the things that makes it very particularly Soviet, right? Um, that uh, you have a huge population that are understood as counter-revolutionary, understood as political prisoners, a huge population that un- understands themselves as political prisoners, um, who are housed right in the same facilities with, you know, criminals, with the kind of people who are uh, detained in any system uh, around the world. Um so I think then we have to, you know, see the role that this penal system is playing in determining who can and cannot be released, uh, who can make it back to Soviet society. Um, we have to, to then, you know, and I always come back to this, but then we have to understand the role that labor is playing here. Uh, labor is so important, not just for the economic output that's coming out of it, but for its central role in defining, you know, what it meant to be an honest Soviet person. Um, and the way that they, you know, use these practices, the way that they use the variety of institutions, you know, you have very harsh regime uh, uh, labor camps, you have light regime labor camps, you have labor camp prisoners who are living uh, in Karlaga, for example, they're living out in the steppe without any guard. Uh, at all. They're herding animals around the steppe. Uh, they're living almost as if they're free, uh, though they're not. Um, and we have to understand how, you know, they're using all of these different kinds of institutions to sort those prisoners, uh, and to ultimately make this determination of who, uh, should someday get out of this and who should not. There is no question, of course, that, uh, when they make errors, they're making them on the side of, uh, you know, Fewer people getting out. Um, if, a, you know, extra people die, it's not that big a deal. Uh, we will see, you know, investigations that go on of conditions in various camps and things like this. Um, but a, a camp commander is far more likely to get uh, punished for excessive escapes than for excessive deaths. Uh, and this tells us a lot uh, about this system. Uh, so, you know, I mean, ultimately then, you know, we have to think about it as a penal system. We have to think about the fact that a huge portion is going in, but then also coming back out. Uh, we have to think about what happens while they're there. Uh, you know, in what ways are they trying to remake this person? Um, you know, I mean, I doubt they often made them into the loyal Soviet citizen they were supposed to make them into uh, after an experience like this. Um 
but we have to understand what it is that they thought they were trying to do. Um, and then, you know, we, we see the Gulag experience then, you know, hopefully from uh, a number of different points. We see it from the point of the prisoner who's trying to become one of those who were released. Uh, we see it from the point of, uh, uh, you know, the local camp official who's trying to uh, determine which of all of these various competing uh, directives they're getting uh, are most important to fulfill to make sure that they don't wind up a prisoner themselves. I can only imagine. Uh, yeah, and you know, so then to, to try to understand all of this, I mean, you know, it's incredibly complex. My book, you know, I hope is making a very strong statement on what I think it's all about. Um, but, you know, hopefully will be, you know, just one of many, many, uh, scholarly attempts to understand the system, uh, from different points of view and different angles. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly is a topic that has, there is, as you said earlier, a lot to be done on. I mean, there's still a lot of things we don't know. Um, about this gulag system, uh, the experience there and its place within a, a region, a locality, or, you know, in the system itself. Um, so just to kind of finish off, since you've given a lot of your time, uh, what are you up to now? Well, uh, a few different things, but the, I think the thing that is driving me now the most is to um, work on another Gulag book. I thought I was done with the Gulag. I thought, no, I'm never going to work on this stuff again. Um, but there are too many things to, to be answered. So I, w- I was um, cleaning up my office of all the detritus of this book um, and found a number of materials that I hadn't used as much as I might have wished I did uh, on a uh, camp called Algier. Uh, this is the Russian term for Algeria, but it's also an acronym. It stands for the Akhmolinsk Camp of, for Wives of Traitors to the Motherland. Um, so there was a, a, a decree uh, in, um, I think it's 1937, uh, but basically in the midst of the what we understand as the Great Terror, um, that uh, decreed the punishment of members of the family of, of you know, what they call traitors to the motherland. Uh, so people who were being arrested and shot in 37 and 38 especially, that their family members were subject to punishment. They created a couple of uh, specific uh, camp divisions for wives. Uh, and one of these, Algier, uh, Akhmolinsk, is now uh, the city of Astana, which is the capital of uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, it was th- This camp, Algier, was part of the Karlag system. Uh, so it wasn't a separate independent camp. It was a subdivision of Karlog. Um, and it exists for a short period of time. And I think, in a way, I'm trying to do something different. Rather than trying to look at something over an incredibly large period of time, I want to look at something for a very short period of time in a very intense way. It's a place, because of the nature of the people who were there, um, we have a lot of personal accounts of this particular location. Um, we can find official documentation of this particular location. Uh, and therefore, I hope to, to be able to, to, you know, see in even closer detail what daily life was like for prisoners, but also to focus especially on women's experience in the camps. I don't do nearly enough of it uh, with it in my book. Um, I don't think that we have... Uh, nearly as much as we should have on women's lives, even though women make up a significant portion of the memoirs that we have uh, about the Gulag system. Um, and so, you know, I'm hoping to, to, to take a close look at that um, and, and see what I can, can come up with. I would guess that there are also children there too, right? Yeah, yeah, and certainly the women would come with very small children, uh, but after a per- period of time, children would be 
either returned uh, to family members if there were family members willing to take them uh, or quite often put into uh, essentially a Soviet system of orphanages, which were very much like their own camp system. Uh, and it is not at all uncommon that these women will never see their children again uh, or only see them after many, many, many years. Um, I mean, it's it, just so much tragedy in this um, particular story of the Gulag, but also so much interesting. And we have these TypeScript memoirs uh, of you know women describing with intense pride the creation of a textile factory in this camp division, um, and you know very proud of the labor that they were performing. Right, almost sort of echoing what uh, the authorities were were telling them that they had to do uh, in their own account of this experience. And this shows us, I think, even more strongly. Uh, how important uh, labor is as a definition of, of who you are as a Soviet person. When even these, you know, many of them writing 30, 40, 50 years later, this is one of the things they focus on very strongly is is what they accomplished. Wow. Well, I look forward to it. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about your book. Great. I really enjoyed it. And- I've been speaking with Stephen Barnes about his book, Death and Redemption, The Gulag and the Shaping of Soviet Society. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Andrew Gentis about his book, Exile, Murder, and Madness in Siberia, 1823 to 1861. Until then, goodbye. От того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо блампочку повесить. Денег все не соберем. Берем. 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 Берем.